Well, good morning again, everybody. If you can make your way back to your seats, we're about to hear the preaching of God's Word. We're also, Lord willing, going to be sharing the Lord's Supper at the end of the service, so begin to prepare your heart for worshiping the Lord through the Lord's Supper as well. A funny story, uh, me and a bunch of the guys went down to the men's conference this weekend, and it was an outstanding time. And uh, I got I got a call from uh, John, or a text from John late Friday night. He was supposed to preach this morning, John Reyes, but he, he's really sick with strep throat. So if you could just pray for John, um, because uh, he's just uh, just in need of your prayers for his health. But as, and Kim as well, Kim's sick as well, so pray for Kim. Um, but when John was sick, I realized I was going to need to step in and preach um, on short notice. And um, I wasn't able to make it down Friday night because John was supposed to go down with the guys for the men's retreat. But Louis Cintron took a bunch of the guys down. And um, you know Louis, he began talking to a bunch of people about our situation. He knew about John not being able to fill in. And I wasn't going to be able to go on Saturday with the guys to the men's retreat because of uh, filling in last minute. And uh, Lewis started talking to folks, and uh, Bill Patton overheard him. And uh, Bill said, hey, I'd love to come and preach uh, at the church. And Bill's a longtime pastor within Sovereign Grace Churches and a good friend. And so Lewis sent me a text of a picture with him and Bill Patton. And it just said, Bill wants to come and preach. And so I just smiled and and I realized in that moment that uh, God was providing a solution that I was going to be able to go to the men's conference and worship on Saturday, which I did with the guys yesterday. And also we had uh, an excellent preacher uh, coming in to, to fill our pulpit this, this morning. Um, so thank you so much for Lewis. Uh, and thank you, Lewis. And thank you, Bill, for coming on short notice. Um, just a few thoughts on Bill Patton. Um, this story I, I think is really cool. I think you guys will like this. In 1977, uh, the Lord established Covenant Life Church, which was our first Sovereign Grace Church. And then um, in 1984, uh, Bill and Sue Patton and uh, little little Chris Patton, who's uh, now at our sister church, Grace Community Church, and he's preached in our pulpit as well, um, and the rest of Bill's children uh, came with a church planning team from Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland. They planted the church in Philadelphia. Um, that was the church that me and uh, my wife Shannon attended, and that was the first church that we came into Sovereign Grace through uh, when her and I met at Westchester University. And a bunch of us college students started going to Covenant Fellowship Church. I got to meet Bill. I was inspired by his zeal and his passion for Christ and his passion for the local church. Um, but Bill planted um, Covenant Fellowship in 1984. And uh, that church uh, was fruitful in the gospel. And they then planted Community Life Church of Cherry Hill in 1993 with Warren Betcher. Um Covenant uh, Community Life Church in 2001 planted Christ Community Church of Reading. And we have been going forward here for the last 16 years. And last year, in 2017, uh, we had the honor 
and the glorious privilege of planting a church to Croatia. What, what is so exciting about this story is that you look at 1977 with Covenant Life Church and then Covenant Fellowship, Community Life, Christ Community, and now the church in Croatia. You just you, What you see, and, and this is important to see, it's 40 years of God's faithfulness to his church. And we have a God who, from generation to generation, he never changes. He remains the same. And he's glorious and he's awesome, isn't he? And he is so good to preserve his church and to advance his gospel through through weak men and women who love Jesus. But his church goes forth, his gospel goes forth to the nations. And I'm so excited for you to hear uh, Bill Patton preach this morning. I mean, we were talking to my kids last night, me and Shannon, uh, and, and they were asking about Mr. Patton because they hadn't yet heard him preach. And uh, Shannon, my wife, just said, "Kids, you're gonna love him. He's a fireball." And so you're gonna you're gonna love fireball Bill Patton coming and preaching God's word from the Book of Daniel. So can we welcome Bill Patton to come as he preaches God's word to us? <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, maybe I was a fireball back when back when my hair was brown. <laughs> it's great to be with you this morning, and uh, yeah, on Friday night, this was just an idea, and uh, what an honor for me to find myself with you today. Uh, we share a bond together in a common history. We're bound together, not just by our love for the Eagles, uh, and screaming our lungs out for them tonight, but we are bound together in partnership in the gospel through sovereign grace. I I love your pastor. I love CB. I wish I knew him better than I do, but I remember him as a, as a zealous college student who was consumed with love for Christ. And there was an evident call in his life, and it's just so good to, to see how that has played out. I just can't believe that it's you've been here 16 years. I mean, it just seems like you and Shannon just met and got married. That's what happens when you get old, you know? It's like everything seems like it was yesterday. Um, let's turn to the book of Daniel together. I bring you greetings from Covenant Fellowship and the pastoral team there. Uh, we love you. We care about you. And we're so delighted to be in this work together. You know, you might look around this room and say, we're not very impressive. We're not an impressive group. What's amazing is that the work of the kingdom happens through people who are not impressive. That it's, it's exactly this kind of gathering in relatively insignificant places that causes the gospel to go out into all the earth. And how I rejoice to see we just have a little glimpse from 77 when I was just out of college 
out of the University of Maryland, joined up with a guy named CJ and some other brothers and planted a church. And we see from then, like 75, 77, up to, you know, what is it, 2017, five different levels of church planting that has sprung out from that. Brothers and sisters, we're here because of thousands of things like that. Thousands. That's why we're here. That's why the gospel came to us. Because lots of people, just like you, gathered together to learn about Jesus Christ and then exercised their gifts and obeyed the call of Jesus Christ to take this gospel into all the earth. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. So it thrills my heart to be among you. This is an outpost of the kingdom and not an insignificant one. We're going to read from the first chapter of Daniel. My title of my sermon this morning is Life's Bewildering Turns. Life's Bewildering Turns. Daniel chapter 1. I'm tempted to read the whole chapter, but let's see how far we go. In the third year... Of the reign of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God and brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned to them a daily portion of food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the user of your own age? So you would endanger my head with a king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. 
As for these four youths, God, God gave them. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all the kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of Cyrus. Well, we read the whole chapter. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. I'd like to share a story that I was graciously given permission to tell. A young woman in her early 20s who grew up in Covenant Fellowship, uh, where CB and Shannon met, This young woman married a fine young man that she met there at the church. And after a while, she conceived and the pregnancy went very well. She and her husband learned, as couples these days do, that she was expecting a girl. So they planned for their daughter's arrival with great anticipation and joy. The young woman's husband painted a special feminine mural on the wall in the bedroom. They They were showered with baby girl gifts and heaps of baby gear as the dates as the date approached the young woman went into labor without complication her parents received a call from their son-in-law informing them that labor was progressing well and that their daughter was about to deliver to deliver it was time to go to the hospital the parents didn't think anything of it when the labor went longer than normal that often happens with first children But they began to wonder if something was wrong when the nurses would not give them updates. As it turns out, something had gone terribly wrong. Just before birth, the nurse had trouble finding a heartbeat. And at birth, the child was lifeless. The doctors tried desperately to get the little girl to breathe, but it was too late. The child was dead, and the doctors were unable to revive her. The young woman and her husband, stunned and weeping bitterly, held and kissed the body of their precious daughter, their dreams utterly shattered. What was expected to be a moment of unspeakable happiness became, in an instant, an unspeakable sorrow. Their precious child, their lovely little daughter, already so deeply loved and cherished, lay dead in their loving arms. Now the child went straight to heaven and the first thing she beheld was the face of her dear Savior. But life had taken a bewildering turn for my daughter and her husband. A turn that would shake them. A turn that would test their faith. A turn that would mark them forever. Such turns are not as uncommon as we might think. In my little world, during a short two-week period, uh, 
two summers ago. Our community group was just, we pray for one another for situations in our lives and in people close to, in the lives of people close to us. And in my little community group of about a dozen people, we were praying for a teen who was endlessly year after year bedridden with Crohn's disease. We were praying for a family, some of the grandchildren of one of the members of our community group where three of the four children at that time were chronically ill, sick, year after year. Now it's four out of the four children and Andy Cully shared his testimony at the men's retreat Friday night. We were praying for them two years ago. That same week, we found out about one of the one of the guy's brothers was undergoing a stem cell transplant. In that same two-week period, we got news that our pastor's two-year-old daughter was diagnosed with lymphoma, Jared's daughter. We found out that an old friend from Covenant Life Church had been at Johns Hopkins for cancer for a month. We found out that another friend was about to undergo his fourth brain tumor surgery. Every one of those represents broken hearts and shattered dreams. In April, just past April, I received a call from my brother Bobby. Have you heard? No. He said, Andrew, our nephew, a recovering heroin addict, who had been praying with his mom every day and going to church every Sunday in an attempt at recovery, had hung himself. Bert and Gina's world, my brother, my my sister-in-law, and the world of their other children was utterly shattered that day. For them, life had taken a bewildering turn. Life is always taking a bewildering turn for somebody. Life has taken a number of unexpected, heartbreaking turns for me and for my wife Sue over the years. Some of you know a little bit of our story. I won't tell it today. My purpose this morning is to encourage those of you in this room who may be suffering life's bewildering turns, but also to prepare to prepare us all, myself included, for the ones that are yet to come. Jeremiah Burroughs, in a book that is my favorite book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, no book has helped me more. He says in that book, Oh, you say, but the affliction that comes upon me is an affliction which I never looked for. I never thought I would meet with such an affliction And that is what I cannot bear. That is what makes my heart so disturbed because it was altogether unlooked for and unexpected. And Burroughs responds, it is your weakness and folly that you did not look for it and expect it. When Paul said, I look for nothing else but bonds and affliction wherever I go. Trouble is normal. We live in a fallen world. Don't be surprised at what you're going through. Don't be surprised that there are seasons in church life that are difficult. I've lived through four or five of them. 
it's normal. We live in a broken and a fallen world. Peter said, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. As though something strange were happening to you. Now we know it shouldn't be this way. That's what, that's what tears us apart, doesn't it? We, we know that something's really messed up. That people suffer like this. But of course, as Christians, we know why. It's because we rebelled against the Lord and have become entrapped and ensnared in a world of sin. How do we as Christians, here's my question today and the question I want to answer. How do we as Christians keep our stability and maintain our example when life takes a disappointing turn? One of the things I love about, there's a lot of things I love about CB. One of the things I love most is his, is his unquenchable joy. When CB suffers, he's still filled with joy. Now that's a grace from God. I also love his loyalty. When CB suffers, he doesn't, he doesn't behave in a way that is disloyal to his brothers and sisters and his friends. My question is, how do we as Christians keep our stability and maintain our example when life takes a disappointing turn? How will you respond if slander or opposition or dissension or persecution or mistakes reaches critical mass and changes everything? How will you keep your stability and maintain your holy example when the loss of your job or your esteem or your respect or your health or even your spouse happens? How does a Christian with a sorrow-filled heart and shattered dreams behave? How does a broken-hearted Christian move into the future full of grace and life? How does, how does he or she do that when something wonderful and precious has been lost? How do you remain faithful? How do you remain fruitful? How do you position yourself to impact the future for Christ? Well, our text points the way for us in the example of Daniel and his friends. Life had certainly taken a bewildering turn for them. And it, it might not be immediately obvious to us just having read the text. But if we slow down and think and ask ourselves, what would this have meant for these guys? It begins to come into focus. Jerusalem, their home city, had been besieged. Very first verse of the chapter. And these young elites had been exiled to Babylon, hundreds of miles away. A siege is a cruel thing. It brings a city to its knees. People starve. No doubt these young men had watched friends and family die. And the friends and family who survived the siege were dispersed forever, exiled to different lands. They're scattered all over the Babylonian Empire. These men were once and for all separated from everything that was comfortable and familiar and precious to them. Think about it. 
How bewildering a turn was it for these guys? Well, they lost their homes. Now, just imagine losing your home. I'm not talking about a home that you want to lose, that you want to move out of. I'm talking about the home that you love, the home that is home. They lost their homes. They were forced out of their homes without payment. They didn't, they didn't get their money out of, they didn't get their equity out of their property. They lost their families. Their families were either dead or scattered to the four winds. They lost their nation. The nation they identified with, the country that they loved, they lost their nation. It was nothing. Israel, the Israel that they had known was gone. They lost their church. The temple was far away and 11 years later in a siege that was even worse as the remnant of people who were left still in Jerusalem rebelled against the king. They burned the temple to the ground. They lost their leaders. Their favorite teachers were gone. There was no the guys who taught them the Bible as they were youths in Jerusalem. Gone. They lost their freedom. Imagine losing your freedom. And now they're slaves. They lost their language. Everyone around them was speaking a foreign language. They were no longer in their native country where everybody was speaking language they could understand. And to add insult to injury as if all that wasn't enough, they lost their names. This is not your name anymore. The New Testament tells us that Old Testament stories were written down for our instruction. Now, when we read the Old Testament, God wants us to first and fundamentally see Christ there. But he also wants us to learn from the negative example of Israel's persistent and stubborn idolatry and their love for the world and their enticement with the things of the world. He wants us to learn from that negative example and he wants us to learn from the positive example of heroes like these four extraordinary young men. We want to learn from them. The first half of the book of Daniel, the first six chapters, if you haven't read it recently, I read it again last night just to prepare my heart for this sermon. What a story. What a story. The, the second half of the book of Daniel gets strange as Daniel's having visions and stuff like that. But man, the first six chapters are like, it's like narrative. It is, it's thrilling to read it. It will, it will set your heart on fire. In those first six chapters, we see four men who walk through enormously bewildering turns. And we see how their positive example can inspire us. I'd like to share five things that we can learn from their positive example. First, they knew who they were. Number one, they knew who they were. When life takes some bewildering turn, it often precipitates a crisis of identity. Well, who am I now? Like this has happened. I mean, this is such a traumatic episode in my life. I really don't know who I am anymore. I was a pastor for 27 years and then I wasn't a pastor. Like, who am I? Who am I now? My identity was wrapped up in that role. And this is what happens to all of us. 
The first thing we see in the book of Daniel is four young men in the midst of bewildering change, fighting to retain their origins, their calling as God's people, and their identity. And this is, this is, this is what's at the heart of, at the whole episode with not eating the king's food. John Calvin in his lectures on Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar's desire to have them acquainted with the language of Chaldea arose from his wish to separate them by degrees from their own nation, to induce them to forget their Jewish birth and to acquire the Chaldean manners. We want you to forget the ways of your God and embrace our ways. Since language, he says, is a singular bond of communication and culture. He wanted to nourish and intoxicate them with the delicacies and render them forgetful of their own nation, to soften them with luxuries. He wanted them to reckon themselves as Chaldeans rather than Jews, and thus to deny their own origin. Brilliant. So Daniel and his friends abstained from the king's food and wine in order to fight for their identity in God. Again, Calvin says, Daniel simply desired that by this very food, perpetually to recall the remembrance of his country. He wished so to live in Chaldea as to consider himself an exile and a captive, sprung from the sacred family of Abraham. Daniel was at liberty to eat and drink at the royal table, but the abomination arose from the consequences. He perceived the king's intentions. The king wants to intoxicate us with the best that his palace has to offer so that we will forget who we are, and we're not going to forget who we are. We're going to eat like the people back home. He was identifying with his heritage. So the partial fast was about remembering their calling as sons of the covenant. To remember their citizenship in the kingdom of God. It was a way of steeling themselves against Satan's intentions. And let me just speak for a moment to, to some of the young people here. Because I remember when I was young. Some of you may have experienced a devastating heartbreak. A broken relationship. You've experienced rejection in some way by someone whose acceptance meant a great deal to you. And you've experienced deep disappointment. I think you can learn a lesson from these four young men. You too are sprung from a sacred family. Most of you, if you're young people here, were raised in a Christian home. You've sprung from a family of faith. In the midst of your disappointments and sorrows and heartbreak and the tears that you shed on your pillow at night, don't forget who you are. Don't forget the family that you came from. Don't forget the privileges that God gave you. And if you will remember... God is going to do great things through you. So, when life seemingly goes all wrong, at any age, the enemy attempts to shred our Christian identity. 
and draw us into the world and its passing pleasures. He wants us to forget that as Christians, he called us to be a chosen people, to be distinct, to be different, to be a royal priesthood, to be members of a holy nation, to be a people for his own possession. Our enemy wants us to forget that we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. The enemy wants us to forget that God has called us into his wonderful life. When life takes a bewildering turn, the enemy wants to tear the city of God out of our hearts. And what we see in these four brothers is guys who would not forget Zion. They wouldn't forget Jerusalem. They wouldn't forget Moses and Abraham. They wouldn't forget Isaiah and Jeremiah. They weren't going to forget. They were resolved to remember. They wouldn't allow the enemy to tear the city of God out of their hearts. The enemy wants us to forget our origins, our history, our holy calling. As Christians, we need to remember in the midst, particularly when life takes a bewildering turn and you are completely disoriented. I've got this diagnosis. What? This relationship is over. What? Who am I? There's a, in the midst of that disorientation. Remember who you are and who called you. Remember your duty to Christ and to his people. Remember that other Christians and our children and the world look to us in the midst of these troubles. How will she respond now? How will he respond now? Your children are watching. Your relatives are watching. Your co-workers are watching. The world is watching. What will you do with this? Well, these four men tenaciously clung to their origins, their calling, and their identity with a sense of responsibility to God. We cannot forsake him. And a sense of responsibility to their fellow Israelites in exile. There are Israelites spread all across this, this Babylonian empire. We are in the king's court. It matters how we live. Because they're watching us. They were aware as well of the unbelievers around them. And if you read the first six chapters of Daniel. And towards the end of that narrative. You've got kings declaring the glories of God. You've got Nebuchadnezzar saying, this God of these guys must be respected by everyone in the kingdom. Wow. Second, they stayed together. First, they didn't forget who they were. Second, they stayed together. This may seem obvious, but when when life's bewildering turns hits us and we're we're struggling to figure out who we are, we can also, during those times, separate ourselves from the very people whom God has given to help us. They stayed together. When they found out that Nebuchadnezzar was going to kill all the wise men for not knowing his dream or, his, or its interpretation, the, the text says that Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. His companions, his Brothers, the guys who God had given to him to walk together with. 
And he said, brothers, let's, we got to pray. Join me in earnest prayer. And these compassion, these companions stayed together and they prayed together through this crisis. Uh, yet another bewildering turn. We're about to all be killed. Brothers, let's pray. And I think it's interesting that the text says when they were in the king's court, their names were Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they gathered together to pray, the text says they were Daniel, Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah. So when they were together, they were the sons of Judah. They knew who they were when they were together. Well, they weren't together by accident, but by God's sovereign design for their good, for Israel's good, and for the good of the Gentiles. Sometimes God's plan requires that brothers separate. So I'm not saying, you know, don't ever say goodbye to beloved brothers and sisters. God sometimes calls us to say goodbye. But these brothers of the tribe of Judah stayed connected to each other. And that was critical for them. They stayed connected to the brothers with whom they had a shared history and and identity. And in the trials that Sue and I have walked through, I'm so thankful that we stayed. We stayed with the brothers. My pastor through the through the trials when they initially hit us. Andy Farmer is still my pastor today. I'm so glad we stayed. So they stayed with the guys with whom they had a shared history and identity. And consequently together, they didn't miss the unique opportunities that life's bewildering turn turns had afforded them to glorify his name before the Gentiles. I think if we're going to glorify God in the midst of the crazy things that happen in life and the sorrows of life, we need each other. And these guys knew that. So my counsel to you, my advice is when life takes a bewildering turn for you, Stay connected to your most godly, serious-minded fellow Christians. Stay connected to those brothers and sisters with whom you have a shared history and identity. Don't try and start over with new friends. Friendships forged over years or over decades can't be replaced in weeks or months. Your long-term friends are there for the time of, of adversity. Together you'll be strong. Together you're going to pray and know what to do. Together you're going to withstand a thousand temptations. You are easy pickings if you're alone. When trials come, don't break with your Christian companions. These guys stayed together. Number three, they followed gifted leadership. They followed gifted leadership. I want you to notice that there's a leader amongst these four guys. One of them is, is, is leading. One of them has the grace to lead. Daniel is leading here. So it's Daniel who resolved that he wouldn't defile himself with the king's food and wine and brought the brothers into that. 
It's Daniel who appealed to the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel's the one that has grace to talk to the officials. Daniel is the one who went and spoke to the king. So these brothers knew that even throughout the disastrous history of their nation, God had always raised up gifted leaders for other leaders and for the people to follow. God raised, had raised up Daniel with his graces and these men let him lead. So my question to you this morning is, who are the leaders that God has raised up to lead you? Who are the ones who are filled with character and gifts and graces to lead? Who is it in your life, in your circles, who calls the prayer meetings when things are going south? Who is it who invites you to follow them as they resolve in the midst of the trouble to follow Christ? Let them lead. Follow them as they follow Christ. I I love this about the ways of God. He doesn't leave his people without leaders. Even when the whole nation of Israel was going headlong in love with the world. And God said that I'm going to remove you from the land and send you to Babylon. He still gave them Isaiah. He still gave them Jeremiah. In the midst of life's bewildering trouble, God gives us leaders, pastors, to help us. Fourth, they trusted God's wisdom. They trusted God's wisdom. When the king said to Daniel's friends, at a time when Daniel wasn't there, You know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Like, where's Daniel? Well, maybe he was on a business trip. You know, I I don't know where Daniel was. But these three brothers are clearly leaders in their own right. Uh, When you see how they responded to this particular situation. So Daniel's not there. You got the three other brothers. And the king comes to the... Some guys came to the king and said, Hey, you know that statue you set up and you told everybody to worship? Well, there's three guys who aren't worshiping. And the king was enraged. So he called them and he was very sweet to them. And he said, guys, you know, like when the trumpets blow and all the music sound, like then you bow down, right? And they said, no. And his countenance toward them changed. And he said, worship my image or be thrown into the fiery furnace. And then mocking them, he said, what God will deliver you from my hand now? Like you're so loyal to your God, do you think he's going to get you out of this? Look at their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not. But if not. Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. Or worship the golden image you have set up. But if not, we're going to be faithful to him. So we see two things here that I want to draw to your attention. We see their faith. 
God will deliver us. Hey, God, we're trusting God to deliver us. I mean, there is their faith, right? They're believing God for deliverance even from this trial. And yet, and yet, they're submitted to his wisdom. We don't know for sure what his wisdom is in this situation. So even if he doesn't, if in his wisdom we are not delivered, we're still not going to worship. We're not going to bow down to the image of the king. We believe we'll be delivered, but if the worst happens, we are submitted to his wisdom. Understanding God's sovereignty in all things is critical. And that's one of the main lessons of the book of Daniel, the sovereignty of God. But understanding that his wisdom lies behind his sovereignty is just as critical. So that when there is a providence that is breaking against the way we have prayed, we say to ourselves, his wisdom is behind this and I trust him. He knows what he's doing and allowing it to break the other way. Oh, if you can learn that, it's going to help you so much. This is why Jeremiah Burroughs, again in my favorite book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, insists that it's our duty as Christians to freely submit to God's disposal in every condition. In every condition. Lord, I am submitted to your disposal. You've chosen to use me in in whatever way you want. And if it's if you want to use me by answering my prayers the way that we have hoped and prayed that it would would be the outcome, hallelujah. And if you don't, we are submitted to your disposal. Use us however you want. Whether by life or by death, we are in your hands. We're at his disposal. We're living under his wisdom. He says to complain in any condition is to argue with the wisdom of God. It's not that we can't pour out our hearts to God about our condition. But we don't murmur in our hearts against God. Or accuse him of wrong. When my wife and I walked into that hospital room. Knowing that something bad had happened. We didn't know what. We walked in, my son-in-law's face was absolutely red with tears. My daughter's face was, you could tell she had been just sobbing hysterically. We walked into the room and my, my daughter said, Daddy, I'm fine, but our baby didn't make it. And we know God is good. I was never more proud as a dad than I was in that moment. We freely submit to what his wisdom has allowed. Jeremiah Burroughs defines Christian contentment as this. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, gracious frame of spirit 
which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Lord, You know what You're doing. Behind life's bewildering turns is found God's wise and fatherly disposal. He is choosing how He's going to use us. Listen, when you don't know what's going to happen, when your trust is shaken by developments, remember you can trust God's wisdom regarding your life and your family. God's wisdom ordered these circumstances. If you trust Him, if you trust Him, He will glorify Himself in you and through you like He did through these brothers. This pleases God. And it's no wonder to me that Jesus Christ appeared with them in the fiery furnace. And even Nebuchadnezzar glorifies their God. That doesn't surprise me because God loves that kind of trust in His wisdom. Finally, the fifth point, last point. They knew their lives were about God's glory. And this is, the, I think, the main point that I want to make this morning. They knew their lives were about His glory. Living for His glory is our primary purpose. It's our primary purpose now and forever. Our lives are about Him. They're about His glory. Our lives are about His fame. Our lives are not about us or our success. Our lives are not about our children's success or our affluence or our status or our pleasures or even our ministries. Our lives are about His glory. That's our primary purpose. Okay, so get that set in your mind. Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? Well, it's to glorify God. Secondary purposes flow out of that. So, working with children, or working as a teacher, or working in a business, or working as an artist, or raising a family, or being a nurse, or a doctor, or being a worship leader, or being a pastor, or leading a small group, or playing in the worship band. By the way, I love the worship band this morning. You guys are great. Or being a mom. Being a mom, all those things, every one of them is subject to sudden and life-altering change. It can end in a moment, or it can end in a season. You lose the job. Suddenly, you're not a pastor anymore. That's what happened to me. You lose the job. The children leave home. Like, I'm a mother. Who am I now? There's no kids. The business fails or it reorganizes. The other guy gets the promotion. Your health changes everything. A dear child rebels against the Lord and breaks your heart. A spouse becomes seriously ill. Brothers and sisters, we make a mistake when we take all those secondary purposes and make them primary. Because if you lose one of your secondary purposes, you feel like, what is my life? What do I have to live for? There's nothing left for me to do. Because a secondary purpose is no longer there. 
And that's the problem is we've exalted secondary purposes and made them primary. We make a mistake when we make secondary purposes everything. What is the chief end of man? Shorter catechism. You know the answer. The chief end of man, our chief purpose, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is to reflect his greatness and power and majesty and splendor to show that our chief enjoyment is in God and not in the world. And here's the joy that I I want you to break through to this. If you can see this, you can't lose your primary purpose, no matter what happens. Nobody can take that away from you. No circumstance, nothing can prevent you from fulfilling your primary purpose in life. You can't be forced by any development to live a purposeless life. You have now and you have forever the opportunity to glorify God. Every day, every hour, through the tears, through the sorrow, through the heartbreak, everything might be going wrong. There might be trouble on every side. Or worse, your life could be at its end. Utterly spent. You may be on your deathbed and about to draw your life's last breath. You still have a purpose. There's still something for you to do. You can still glorify Jesus Christ. The essential question when bewildering turns come to us is not, how did this happen? Or why? Why? Why did this happen? Those questions fold into the mystery of God's eternal plan for the ages. We can't know the answers. And it doesn't please God for us to beat ourselves up asking unanswerable questions. The essential question, and if there's anything I've learned through the trials that we've suffered, which are really not much compared to trials that others I know and love have suffered. But if there's anything I've learned, it's, Don't ask those questions. Here's the question to ask. It's not how did this happen or why did this happen, but how do I glorify you now? How do I glorify you now? Now that that everything has come unglued, how do I glorify you now? And the Holy Spirit will show you how. I'm fine. My daughter didn't make it. But we know God is good. She found a way to bring him glory. At the very lowest point of her life. And then a corollary to that, we don't often go to the second question in the catechism, is what rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify Him and enjoy Him? And the answer is the Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old Testament and the New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify Him. In other words, don't just ask, how do I glorify you now? But also ask, what am I forbidden to do? Scriptures will not allow me to charge God. That's a sin. So you've got these boundaries that, that your knowledge of Scripture from having sat and listened to C.J. Pre- or C.J. 
CB all these years. Right? Okay, you've got the word of you know what those boundaries are. You know where you can't go. And the Holy Spirit is telling you where to go in the midst of this. How does Scripture direct me in these circumstances? And what does Scripture forbid? Think about how to glorify God in the trial. Trust Him for everything else. Trust Him for everything else. Trust God for all the details and all the secondary purposes. I lost my job. What do I do now? Trust God for that. Trust Him for livelihood and provision. He's going to take care of you in life and in death as you make glorifying Him your focus. So just in closing, how, what did this look like for these four brothers? Like, okay, they're trusting God. Even if he doesn't deliver us, we're not going to bow. We're going to stay within the boundaries of Scripture. We're not going to go worship idols, which is how our nation got in exile in the first place. Sorry, we won't bow down. How did it work out? How did God use them? Well, in ways they could have never imagined. When they were faced with assimilation, glorifying God meant abstaining from Babylonian delicacies and staying in fellowship. When faced with pressure to worship the king's statue, glorifying God meant obeying the first commandment he gave Moses and refusing to bow down to a graven image. When faced with the threat of being thrown into a den of hungry lions for petitioning any god besides Darius the king, glorifying God meant for Daniel to get down on his knees and pray to God facing Jerusalem three times a day with a window open just like he had always done. That was not a good career move. But he wasn't going to be somebody different when the stakes were high. So God glorified himself mightily through those brothers. He gave them the interpretation of dreams. He met them in the fiery furnace. He sent an angel to shut the mouths of the lions. He revealed the meaning of the handwriting on the wall. He used them and their example as a testimony to the king who sent decrees about this God throughout all the kingdom. He used them to preserve and sustain a remnant of his people who would return to the land and their descendants would bring forth Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. He used them to preserve the worship of the God of heaven in synagogues that were scattered throughout the empire. Synagogues, notably... Where Paul, hundreds of years later, showed up to preach the gospel to the Jew first. He went to the scattered Jews first. They, by their faithfulness to Christ, by their resolve to glorify God alone, unknowingly helped lay the groundwork for the explosive growth of the, new, of the churches in the New Testament age. You don't know how God is going to use you. If you live for his glory when life takes a bewildering turn. If you stay focused on your main purpose. If you endure life's bewildering turns in such a way that it's clear to everyone. Like it was clear about Daniel and his friends. That for you, for you, for you to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If you live that way, He will advance His purposes mightily 
through you. He will. Even if you don't live to see it. These brothers didn't live to see it. Let's celebrate the fact that God has given us to one another and that He's shown us mercy in His Son by breaking bread together. CB, you want to come and lead us? Thanks so much. God bless you. Thank you, ushers. You can begin to distribute the elements for communion and Church, let us begin to just prepare our heart. And I think that the question that uh, Bill asked, um, in terms of just the question that matters most in our lives, no matter what season we're ever in, is the question, not how did this happen in my life right now, or why did this happen? That, that's where I can often get so hung up, can't you? Just why, why is this taking place? Why is this happening in my life? But just, no, you know what, Lord, how, how do I glorify you now? How do we as a church glorify you now? There's always hope when we focus in on the primary question, why am I here? I am here and you are here. To glorify God. You know, when Bill was talking and preaching, I was thinking of Jesus' high priestly prayer the night before he was crucified for our sins, which we're celebrating here with the Lord's Supper, his body broken and his blood shed for us. That Jesus was focused on bringing glory to his Father above everything else. He was about to die on the cross and save sinners. But his uppermost goal, his uppermost aim, was always to glorify the Father. And in that way, Jesus really is the example for us of what Bill preached. That no matter what turns life takes, if we keep our eye on that primary goal, glorifying God and that primary purpose there's always something for us to do there's always hope the reason we spin out of control the reason we see individuals walk away from the lord is because they get so consumed over those secondary questions that as bill so wisely preached to us are tied up in the mysteries of god's providence why he ordained for the people of Israel to go into exile in Babylon and for the temple in Jerusalem to be burned, for Jerusalem to be destroyed, for them to lose their family, for them to lose all that they had. It's a mystery, and it takes the vantage point of, of time to look back and see, had those things never taken place, Daniel never would have had the opportunity to glorify God the way he did in Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego never would have had the opportunity to glorify God the way they did in Babylon 
and these stories in Scripture that we have come to cherish never would have taken place had the hard things, the bewildering things not come. And brothers and sisters, we serve a risen Savior who understands life's bewildering turns, don't we? Thank God we have a Savior in Jesus Christ who is a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Aren't you so thankful that we have a Savior who understands? We understand we have a Savior who pled out to God in Gethsemane, my God, my God, if it's possible for this cup to be taken away from me, take it away. Yet not my will, but yours be done. You see this submission, the submission to his Father, to bring glory to his Father, even when he knew he was going to die the next day on the cross. It was hard for him to do it. It wasn't easy for Christ to die. But Christ submitted himself to his Father's will and obeyed the Lord and trusted him and said, I'm going to prioritize bringing glory to you, Father, even in the midst of this perplexing and very difficult trial that is coming upon me tomorrow. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he did that in order to save you and I who have believed in this room and also to glorify his Father. Thank you, Jesus. Communion is for Christians, and if you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we would ask you to do that at this time. And if you haven't, repenting and trusting in Christ will enable you to be able to partake in the Lord's Supper. But if you haven't, we would ask you to refrain. This is only for Christians. Matthew chapter 26 says, in verse 26, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Let us remember our Lord Jesus and his broken body that he suffered for our sins. Thank you so much, Jesus. Let's partake. Verse 27 of Matthew 26 says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let us partake of the cup and remember our Savior's sufferings and his shed blood. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to close this in prayer. I'd love to ask anybody who would desire prayer 
as in the midst of your bewildering turns to come forward at the end of the service. We would be honored to pray with you. Let us pray, because this sermon is applicable to all of our lives right now. And let's ask for God to be glorified in our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the wisdom that we heard this morning from your word and also from Bill. Thank you for his example to us of continuing to trust you in the midst of life's bewildering turns. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people, as Bill preached, following the example of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who never lost focus on their primary purpose. Help us, as your people here in Christ's community, to glorify you in the easy times in our life, but also, Lord, in the hard times. Help us, Almighty God, to keep our eye on the question of how do I glorify you now? And even right now, in the midst of our sufferings, Lord, we ask that question to you. How might we glorify you right now? Protect us, Lord, from endlessly pining over a life, Lord God, that you have not ordained for us. You have ordained for us to glorify you right here, right now, in the midst of of these perplexing circumstances and trials that we have been given. Help us to shine the light of Christ into this dark world that so desperately needs to see an example of someone who's not a fair-weather Christian. Help us not to be fair-weather Christians, but to be Christians in all times and all seasons when we're rejoicing, and when we're weeping. Help us to likewise say, I know God is good, as Bill's daughter is an example to us. We love you, Almighty God, and we thank you so much for not removing yourself from the experience of suffering, but being a God who understands suffering because you endured it for us on the cross. Thank you for saving us and thank you for the hope that we have in our eternal future in heaven where one of the great joys will be not just seeing your face, but never suffering another bewildering turn again. We are so thankful we're heading there, those of us who have trusted in you. We're so thankful to be children of God and have the identity of being children of God in this world. Help us to shine forth as lights even as we head out, even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we give thanks to God as well for Bill and thank him again for just coming and preaching God's word to us. Thanks, Bill. I know you were blessed like I was. Uh, church, if you get an opportunity to encourage Bill, please do so. Um, if anyone would need prayer, please feel free to come forward and I'd love to pray with you. Um, have a wonderful day, church. Enjoy glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. God bless you.